Good morning again. This week in preparation for uh, teaching through, continuing to teach through Jude, I looked up a couple articles. One was titled, Watching Your Tone. And there was a good quote within that article that said, Your tone of voice tells others a great deal about who you are. Ever think about that? Your tone of voice tells others a great deal about who you are. And then the other one was titled, How Much Does Tone of Voice Really Matter in Communication? How Much Does Tone of Voice really matter in communication. And within that article, uh, a quote that got my attention is, your communication will be powerful when you acknowledge that words are the last thing people hear. The first thing is how your body and tone match what you say. Now, don't confuse volume with tone. With tone, While there are Uh, extreme situations, maybe as a parent, uh, that we may need to raise our volume of our voice, uh, maybe when a toddler gets too close to the street. But the vast majority of us, if we're honest, have increased our volumes, not because of someone else's protection, but more than likely our frustration. And if a young person was to take anything this morning, they might cling to that, And say, hey, Dad, hey, Mom, we learned you don't need to increase your volume with me. But to the young one, I may say, that may seem appealing to take away, but why did you not just obey them in the first place so that they weren't tempted to raise their volume with you? Tone matters. And we're taking a little journey through this letter of Jude. We've been on this journey for a few weeks now, and this particular letter was written to help, uh, whether it was one church, I've been referring to a church, it may have been multiple churches in a region, we don't know that for sure, but it was written to help the church contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Now, was there a problem? Yes, there was a problem. We've been walking through that certain people had crept in Certain people had crept in unnoticed, Jude says. Well, do you mean that they kind of came into the building like we're in here this morning? No. No, not not necessarily. But into the fellowship of this particular church family. If you like, into the family. Here within our church family, we refer to this as membership about covenanting covenanting together in a fellowship. Not a worldly way of thinking about membership, like joining so that I have access to this activity or that activity, but a covenant, a, a commitment that begins with acknowledging you've been rescued by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Acknowledging that you have been born again, repented of sin, and trusted in Jesus That you've been baptized, which is a a public profession of the inward change that has taken place. So you have the opportunity in baptism to acknowledge, to, to say that my identity is in Christ who died and rose for me. 
And then some, some commitments with others are a part of our membership. These commitments with others who also want to see the continued life of Jesus change us in our individual lives, but in one another's lives. For the sake, for the sake of seeing the gospel continue to save people locally and globally, our commitment. For someone to serve within the life of our church family as an elder, and we've walked through for a while now that we see in the New Testament elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer used interchangeably, which is why we refer to pastors as, or elders as paid or unpaid. And for someone to serve in this capacity within our church family, all of those things would need to be true that I had just mentioned. They would need to have made that type of commitment to the church family. A desire to serve in a role like elder. And the church then would then affirm, based upon not just the profession, but the life that would be consistent with that profession. God calls, we would affirm what God has done and is up to. Last, last week, we looked at Jude, verses 5 through 10. I, f- I felt, I mentioned, I, I still feel it, it's pretty heavy content because it is on the topic of judgment. Jude had initially used three types of judgment, three examples of God's judgment on disobedient Israel, on angels that left their position, and then also Sodom and Gomorrah as types of examples of judgment for those who continued to not believe God at his word, not to submit to him and to his authority in their lives. In like manner, these people who had crept in rely on more than just the Bible for their authority. They pervert grace. They might affirm, if it feels good, do it. And they're full of arrogance, we learn. They follow their own passions and may and are likely beginning to influence and lead others within this church to do the same. In this letter, just 25 verses, and when you put the verses into the letter, just 25 verses ends up in God's sovereign will as one of the 27 books of the New Testament. I was just thinking about that. You know, the recipients of Jude's letter, this short letter, may have been a church family like ours. Maybe in like ours, and, 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 and some of this stuff was going on, and, and it is important enough to God. It is important enough to God and to, to Jude, and God inspires Jude for him to write this to them, for them to receive it, 
and heed its instructions. And it wasn't even just important enough for them then, but it's important enough now that it has been preserved for almost 2,000 years for us. For us to learn from, to see. God cares passionately for those who would consider themselves relatively insignificant. Because you'd think a letter like this would have to go to the, to the massive churches, the big churches, the ones really doing God's work. That hasn't been, that's not really the pattern necessarily of God in the scriptures, is it? He takes those that seem or would see themselves as relatively insignificant, for it is in this understanding that they are potentially most useful to the master. And what is their usefulness? What is their purpose? To spread his presence in the world. To spread his, his presence in the world. This false gospel teaching that was taking place within this particular church family was leading to false gospel living. The very reason that they existed was in jeopardy. The kingdom of Jesus wasn't in jeopardy. The kingdom of Jesus wasn't at stake, but their opportunity to be a part of enjoying the kingdom and seeing it expand into the lives of others was. And so God needed this letter delivered to them by his grace, for his glory, for their joy, for their good. That's a big deal. It's a big deal that we get to continue to open God's word in these letters and hear his voice. If you look at verse 11, maybe that's why Jude's tone sort of changes here. Or at least his tone changes at verse, at verse 11. If you look with me at verse 11. Jude says, woe to them. Woe to those who have crept in. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. Woe to them. I'm not sure where you're at and your familiarity with this with with the bible but when you when you hear a woe it may take your your mind may go to other portions of scriptures because this isn't the first woe that we read in the bible when we when we read it in Jude there are woes in the old testament that God was using people who was conveying to others for him Woe based upon what was happening in their lives. And you also may remember Jesus' woes, right? In the 23rd chapter of Matthew, we read in that portion of Scripture in, in, in Matthew's Gospel, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. There's going to be, he's trying to show there's an inconsistency with what they're teaching and how they live it out. But not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. 
They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. And then Jesus begins at verse 13. Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. See the tone. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees again. Woe to you again, scribes and Pharisees. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. And then two more times right there. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woes are significant. And then Jude continues with three more Old Testament examples. There are, some, there, are some, there are some ladies and even some students uh, that I encouraged if they could walk through as we were going through the Jude series with uh, this kind of study from um, a lady whose name is Jackie Hill Perry. Uh, it's called Jude, Contending for the Faith in Today's Culture. And so I, was, I, had, I had asked if some of them could give it a try and give me some feedback on, on kind of what they thought about not just the author, but how the things were laid out within, within that particular study. And it was, it was in that this week that, that, that she said, it's easy for Christians to spend all their time in the New Testament as if the Old Testament is not also God-breathed. But she says, to have a full grasp of the New Testament, you must spend time in the Old Testament as well. And, and Jude, again, Jude is using... The Old Testament as examples here, using these, these, these as types for them to see what the, the, those who had, who had crept into the church were like. And he begins, he says, for they walked in the way of Cain. And you can spend some time if you want to read all of those portions, maybe this week or today, depending if you have the time. And you, you can read those accounts from Cain and from from Balaam and from Korah. Oftentimes when we think of Cain, we, we realize that Cain was the first, was first murder recorded. God gave him a message in Genesis 4, and Cain rejected God's word. He rejected God's word. He chose wickedness over goodness. They walked in the way of Cain. Abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. Not sure if you're familiar with Balaam. You might be more familiar with the, with, with the donkey he rode on, the mule, whom he had a conversation with. We read when we're looking at numbers to read the story of Balaam's heir. Numbers 22, 23, 24. And even especially in chapter 31 of Numbers where, where we read and that he was brought, that he has brought you near him and all the brothers and the sons of Levi with you. Oh, that's actually the wrong reference. It's up here. Behold, we'll get right there in a second with, with Korah. 
Behold, Numbers 31, 16, Behold these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. He wasn't willing to honor God's voice with God's people. Peter also made, makes reference uh, to Balaam in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, 15 and 16. Uh, Peter says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Loved gain from wrongdoing. We're going to see that come up here in the next few verses concerning these who have crept in. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. That's grace. Grace through a donkey's voice. And then he goes, perished in Korah's rebellion. Now Korah, we learn from Numbers 16, uh, he was a part of the Levite tribe. So he was a part of the the priests. You know, what we learn with this example is that Korah had a priestly position but resented the authority of Moses and Aaron. Korah's disdain for the biblical notion of authority. We even read in Numbers chapter 16. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And that he was brought, he has been brought near him, and all the brothers and the sons of Levi with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? See, Korah didn't like God's authority structure. Moses and Aaron, and then his role. And if you read that section, maybe this afternoon, you, you begin to, to realize this is the part where they were swallowed up. God used judgment to show his holiness in that rebellion against his word, his sinfulness, and that there is judgment. These examples actually intensify as you go through them, from Cain to Balaam to Korah. One person in, in, in observation of these says, Judgment will fall on any pastor or teacher who loves freedom or money or sex or power more than fidelity to God's word. That kind of caught me even this, this weekend, and being someone who would be speaking, and I'm like, Lord, you know my heart, and sometimes my heart can fool me. Help me to see if my words in any way is, is seeking selfish gain. In any way. Because sin is deceptive. So he gives these examples again at verse 11, and then said at verse 12, these. Now he hones in. He leaves the examples of the Old Testament. And now he's going to hone in on what's actually happening at the grassroots of where they're at. These are hidden reefs at verse 12. 
They're hidden reefs. They're, 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 your, your, your translation may be the NIV. It may say blemishes. The, the, the hidden reefs conveys this, this idea that if you were on a boat and you were on the water, it's not, always the, it's not the rocks necessarily that you see coming out of the water that are the most dangerous. It's the ones that are just right under the surface of the water. You can't see them possibly until you go over them. And then they just put a hole in the boat and down it goes. So Jude is saying these that have crept in are like hidden wreaths at your love feast. Now in the New Testament, we know that love feasts uh, were, were a shared meal that the church could have together. It did at times also, also involve the Lord's Supper, this table fellowship. And so he's bringing it in now. He's helping them to see that, that these are hidden reefs, potentially damaging, very dangerous to the life of the church. They're at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. No, no fear. Not because they're solidly rooted in Jesus, because they're not worried. About the holiness of God. They're not worried. Grace just covers everything. Psalm 33 said, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. He sees us in here this morning. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he's fashioned your heart. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. To an extent right now, we should be worried. Right? If we're honest, there are some things happening in our lives that, that we're like, I, I'm glad not everybody in here knows. God knows. God is well aware. And then it says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. This is not a fear of being afraid of God. This is a fear of reverence because we know that in light of, in spite of our sin, Jesus died for them. Now not to live however we want, but to live in increasing obedience to him in all of life. To in increasingly love God, love others, and share Jesus. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. His pre we know his presence brings love, not judgment. Why? Jesus took the judgment. We now know mercy because of what Christ accomplished for us. So that in his presence we know love. And then he says they're shepherds feeding themselves. Again, I don't think he's just using like metaphorical language. I think potentially that within this particular church family, there were those who were now serving in the role of shepherds. One person translated it false, bogus shepherds. God is so passionate about the leadership of a local church family. Jude has a voracious 
appetite for fidelity to God's word. One person said, he knows with conviction that the health of the church depends on pastors who possess living water. And then he goes on to give some poetic examples. They're like waterless clouds. Well, in Palestine, it was a very dry climate. So if, if you're in, in, in need of rain and you begin to see clouds approaching, you're wondering, is this, is this the time there's going to be refreshment? And then they come and then you realize they're waterless, disappointing. They're swept along by the winds. They're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Another example from nature that Jude is using to describe what what their leadership is like. Clouds without rain. Trees without fruit. You're looking at this potential tree as something that's going to bear good fruit. And it gives nothing. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame at verse 13. Idea of storms are happening. I'm not sure you, if, if you go to the shore. And I know a lot of people here love going to the shore. But there's this, there's this foam that can sometimes be kind of thrown up onto the beach. And it's kind of nasty. He says they're like wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars. One person says, in their translation, they really kind of think planets are probably in view and not as much stars. But uh, their, their perspective is that to those living in New Testament times, the planets strayed off course, not following an ordered course. They were unreliable to guide. You see what Jude's doing. He's trying to... He's trying to to help them understand that these potential ones who have crept in are dangerous, fruitless. And leading astray. And he says, for, for, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. You might even think back to verse 4 where he said, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. He says, designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. And then he uses one last example. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, at verse 14. He uses an extra biblical source again. First Enoch. Okay. Not because he's now saying that this is an inspired text, but he's using it as an example. And he, pro- and, he, and he says of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. At verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all. And then he starts using this word repeatedly, ungodly. All the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's trying to show that this ungodliness is actually 
the evidence of unbelief. Spreading his presence in the world is more than getting people, quote, saved, and then God knows their heart, so I can't judge how they live. That's not what it means to spread the presence of Jesus, the aroma of Christ, locally and globally. It's a loving gesture within the church family to see gospel implications as we seek to increasingly love God, one another, and share Jesus. At times, our toughest tones are for those who are within the family. At times. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, Jesus wasn't teaching to not judge or to not recognize how to help someone else increasingly look more and more like Jesus. Because he says, first, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Your posture matters. Your tone matters. Now, instead of that posture, we see at verse 16, Jude said, these are grumblers or murmurers, malcontents, which means they're complainers. They're murmurs, they're grumblers, they're complainers following their own sinful desires. Loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Whether this was financially, whether this was influence, We don't know. But they were trying to leverage their lives within this family, not for Jesus' good, but for their own gain. Not joyous and loving, but critical and quick to detect the weaknesses of others, potentially. They pursued pleasure versus thinking about how they could strengthen others. Flattery for advantage. Remember, flattery is saying something to somebody's face you would never say behind their back. Gossip is saying something to somebody's back you'd never say in front of their face. Both are sin. Both are sin. And they were making a habit of this, apparently. All right, so where do we go from here? Well, this morning, drawing some conclusions... One thing I was thinking about this week and appreciative for is put yourself under good leadership. Putting yourself under good leadership is so important to God. I was thinking about our elder team within the life of First Baptist Church. Because again, we are looking in on a letter where, 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 where it really seems as if these ones who crept in were able to even creep into that level of leadership. And I was thinking about our team and just very grateful for for Bruce, for Wayne, for Adam, and for Brian, for those I had served with here, but for those who I'm currently serving with. And I just was thinking, this is such a this has happened in God's story. Wow, how much should we be praying for our current leadership? 
how we should be on a regular basis praying for those whom are shepherding this church family called First Baptist Church. How intentional should we be at continuing to want to see more and more called into such a role? That's one of the reasons I am thankful for the commitment. For, for, for my understanding of, of, of the importance of membership. I want to encourage you to be praying for Adam, uh, for Bruce, for Wayne, and for Brian. And be praying with your family. If you have children, be praying with your children. For them. Because they love you. They love Jesus. But we know as men... That apart from God's grace, we may need you seeing something in us. The team, learning together, sees things in one another's lives. This team does life with others so that they too can be seen by one another's. It's part of the commitment that we make to one another. In the spaces that we believe God is leading our, our team to encourage our church family to spread his presence in the world, to lead all people to life and growth in Jesus. As we seek to increasingly love God, love one another and share Jesus, holding to the values that we believe have been and still are a part of this church family, making sure that we are biblically shaped, spirit-led, mission-focused, and others-oriented. The decisions and the direction we pray are consistent with these things. We may not be sitting in here like those who have crept in, but we may take some of their postures at times, right? Overly critical, not wanting to submit to authority, God's authority. And so if he shows those areas, trust that Christ paid for them. See, this church that Jude sent this letter to mattered to God, probably not because of their programs or performances, but because of their presence, their presence among people whom God had placed them around. That was their purpose, to, to spread his presence in the world. That's an amazing purpose. Do you not like wake up? At, you, sometimes we've got to be reminded of that, I know, but when you're really thinking about that, that your presence, your life in Christ, individually but in community, for, in partnership with this church family, is to spread his presence. It's to help lead people to life and growth in Christ. Showing one more quick video. Same author, Rosaria Butterfield. And she's having a conversation with uh, this study. It's called Gospel Above All. And J.D. Greer is the one who's doing the interview. Again, Rosaria Butterfield is, they actually referenced the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I have the book up here if you would like it. it you, you can just kind of take it if you're going to commit to read it when you're leaving. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert that she wrote. It's, it's there. There's other some children's books here also. Take them if you would like them.
And in this video, she's talking about the posture. But she also says a few things. They talk about a few things that I think connect well with what Jude is talking about with this particular church family. And so we'll watch this now. Now, hospitality became a, a big yeah. part of your life, and it, it currently is. Right, absolutely. Um, you know, you, I read a book recently called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and I've told you off camera um, that it is one of the most significant books that I've read uh, in the last bit, and uh, one of my wife's favorites. And, you know, I think, um, I think it's the kind of thing that when I have given other evangelism books to people in our church, people love them, but especially, not just the ladies, but especially the ladies in our church have really, you know, they, they've just said, this is what I'm like, you Good. know, I, I may not go out and preach at a, at a stadium like Greg Laurie does, but I can do this. So what is it that, it kind of explain to us, how is hospitality and gospel mission, how are they intertwined? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I came to Christ, not because, you know, Ken Smith was some famous guy, but mm -hmm. because he was my neighbor and he was willing to actually get close enough to the stranger so that he could put my hand into the hand of the savior. Hmm. And that means getting close enough to people to get hurt. Hmm. And so that message has never left me, that the real gospel power of my life is not anything I've ever done on a stage or any book I've written. It has to do with how many hours a day I peel potatoes. Hmm. And, <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of prayer that goes on you know, when you peel potatoes. So you're in, you're in some right. of those too, uh, yes. Uh, yes, right, I've heard. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, 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 so the fact that, that, um, that the gospel is shared, you know, heart to heart, hand to hand, um, has always been part of my, my invitation, my knowledge of Jesus, and it's always been connected in that way. And so mm. Kent and I, Kent is a pastor of a very small church. And so we have, we have, a, we have more room to do this. Mm -hmm. But we, early on in our marriage, we made the commitment that hospitality was going to be central to our, to our budget mm -hmm. and to our time. Mm. And, um, and part of that is because we remember the crushing loneliness mm. of, of being in a church and having the, um, you know, the benediction is still ringing in the air and everybody is sort of going off to their families and, and, and not really having a place to go. Hmm. And then... Well, what reminds me of one of my favorite lines that I've heard you say is, you know, like a lot of people, well, they think hospitality is a performance, yeah. right? And you're like, why well, can't have people over because I got cat hair on the sofa. And you're like, people are not going to die from cat hair on the sofa. They might die of the crushing loneliness that comes yes. from not knowing anybody. Yeah. So what's really powerful in this is you, I mean, let me just hope I can speak in these terms. You kind of were on the other side of the so-called culture war. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. And here now you're on the Jesus team. Yep. And it's not that there's not a place for public debate and not oh, yeah, a place yeah. for public proclamation. Absolutely, absolutely. But you're saying that you think the real way to, to, to bring people to Christ is not necessarily going to be through the large as much as it is through the letter. Yeah, and the. Uh, and, and the open kitchen table. And I that's do. something everybody can do. I do, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that, that that then allows you to do is see in a very individual way the gospel bridge to mm. someone's life because it's going to be different. Mm. So when a neighbor who had been in a three-decade lesbian relationship came over and fell apart and said, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. She has left me. It's quiet enough in your home that you can actually lean in and mm. you can say, Here's all I want you to know. Jesus does not treat his daughters like this. Mm. And that's all I need you to know right now. Mm. Sometimes saying less 
is the invitation to say more later. But those are relational. That's, a, that's the relational aspect of the gospel. And just like Ken Smith did for me, he was able to take my hand, put it into Jesus's hand. When you live a little closer, lower to the ground, then you are able to put the hand of the stranger into the hand of the Savior. Mm. And I think for that reason, I mean, I have made public proclamations and I have written books and mm -hmm. I have taken, taken strong stands, but those are strong stands within a church conversation. I'm not squaring off against unbelievers. Right. I, I'm never squaring off against unbelievers. But I, yeah, so I have taken strong stands within the church right. on gospel integrity. Um, but small things like we've never, we don't have political stickers or we will never put a placard in our yard. Mm -hmm. And when we first moved in, somebody came up and said, Kat, every other yard in the block has a placard. Why don't you have one? Right. He said, because I want you to come and ask me what I think about things. Right. And so all of this culminated into a moment, which I think is my favorite moment, when my neighbor finishing the last drip of coffee in my coffee pot on the day that the meth lab was discovered and Kent is proclaiming the gospel of grace even for our neighbor who was now soon to be incarcerated. And this neighbor turned to me and said, Rosaria, do you want to know the problem with you Christians? And I'm thinking, well, not really, Bill, but I think right. you're going to tell me. And he said, the problem with you Christians is you are so open-minded, it's like your brains are falling out your ears. Hmm. And I thought, could I pay you to say that about me right. on, on, on the internet right now, wow. right? I mean, because that, but that's ultimately wow. the yeah. thing you could get away with in your neighborhood that you can't get away with on the stage. One of my favorite statements by yours, and we'll talk about it a little bit in a, a later session, is you say that the strength of our words should never outpace or never go beyond the strength of our relationship. Right. That ultimately that gospel bridge is person to person. It is. I'm really convicted right now. I feel like I got some people to invite over for dinner. So <laughs> let's let's wrap this one up. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you. thanks for sharing your life and your ministry thank and you. just your testimony with us. Thank you. It's great to be neighbors. <laughs> the strength of our relationship should never outpace the strength of our words. That's true for inside the church family as well. Right? So Jude is sharing tough words. But he's doing it within the context of those whom he loves, and they know he loves them. The woe to you. The woe to you is full of grace. The woe to you is full of grace because it is, a, it is, a, it is not just a tone. It is a tone that many needed to hear because they were a bit self-righteous. Those Pharisees and scribes and their self-righteousness. We know everything. We've got it all right. Jesus is trying to lovingly and gently say, no, that's not right. If you knew the scriptures, you would know me and you would know that I'm from the Father. And they keep unbelieving. So Jesus says, woe to you to get their attention. There's still hope in the woe. There was hope in the woe for Nicodemus. There was hope in the woe for Saul, who became Paul. Pharisees, who thought they had it all right, but God broke them and, and humbled them to see that who they needed was Jesus. That's who we all need. We all need Christ. And as we sing this last song together this morning, crown him with many crowns. No, the wonderful cross. 
when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. See, we're going to see next week as Jude sort of, sort of shifts his tone and says, Beloved, mercy is going to dominate the end of his letter because we are those, because of the wonderful cross, have experienced his mercy. And so as the team comes, I know we're running a few minutes behind, but that's okay. I appreciate your patience. Aaron, you're going to get on me again about saying I know we're running a few minutes behind. I'm sorry, brother. <laughs> I, hear, I looked at my watch one time too, but I think of you. I appreciate you, brother, because you, you help keep good perspective of, of our time together here on, on, on Sundays. And so, Father, we are grateful for who you are. You are a patient and loving, merciful God as we survey the wonderful cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Selfish gain, count as lost, and poor contempt on all our pride. Lord, may you continue to help us be more and more like you, humble. You who are willing to say, come to me, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Even in the woe, there, there's an opportunity. The writer to Hebrews says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts in unbelief. If you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that you would remind us and that, that, that Lord, there is nothing greater in all of life than, than knowing you as our Savior and Lord. And there is no purpose greater in life than having the opportunity to spread your presence to the ends of the earth. In your name, amen. Will you please stand as we sing?